don't think anyone will be offended if I use this one, will you? I think uh, this is just going to do better for me. I'm used to standing in the middle. But it's good to be with you, um, my dear friends. It's been a long time. And I'm thankful in God's providence that I can be with you today. I bring you greetings from Redemption uh, OPC in Gainesville, Florida, where we have been church planting for the last eight years. Well, at least the first four years were church planting. Now it's an established church with elders and deacons, and we're thankful uh, for what the Lord has done there. And I'm I'm thankful that in God's providence, uh, it worked out for me to uh, fill in for Pastor Jeff today as well. Uh, he is in my thoughts and in the prayers of our family. Well, would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, or I suppose your bulletins, but I am going to read one extra verse. Um, so to Hebrews chapter 6, and I'd like to begin in verse 11 and read through verse 20. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's Inspired and inerrant word. Beginning in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. And the grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So, time flies. It's been eight years since we've been here, uh, and... One of the ways in which you measure time flying is by how big the children are here. Um, when, we, when I was here, we used to give a children's exhortation. I don't know if you all still do that. Uh, but I thought that uh, being back here, I would begin by addressing you kids in particular. I know that you all know what an anchor is on a ship, one of those heavy weights that you throw down into the sea. Uh, that grabs onto the bottom and holds your boat in place, yeah? Uh, This year, my wife Marianne and I had the privilege of going on a cruise to celebrate our 15-year wedding anniversary, and we anchored at a few different spots, 
And I saw one of the most beautiful sunsets I think I've ever seen as the sun just kind of sank into the abyss of the sea. And it was beautiful. The, the sea was as calm and wonderful and tranquil as it could be. But anchors typically are for when the sea is not calm and not tranquil. Uh, when a storm comes, at, comes up at sea, it can very quickly become one of the most terrifying and threatening circumstances. The horizon can completely disappear in rolling and breaking waves. You can completely be disoriented. And if you happen to be close to shore where there are rocks... The waves can pick you up and dash you upon those rocks, battering your ship until it sinks into the sea. That's the very thing that happened to Paul when he was sailing to Rome. They got caught in a storm. Acts chapter 27 tells us that when the sailors had taken a sounding and they measured 15 fathoms, they said this, fearing that we might run in on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and they prayed for day to come. They let down four anchors and prayed for day to come. Sometimes life feels like that, where you're letting down your anchors and just praying for day to come. There's not much you can do when you're caught in a storm. You can't change the storm. You can't change the circumstances about you, but if you happen to have an anchor and you can let it down and it can grab on to something at the bottom of the sea, you may have a chance of riding out the storm. As long as your ship is connected by that rope to the anchor, you may not be dashed to pieces. Of course, that doesn't mean that your ship will not be tossed about. But it does mean that as long as your anchor holds, you may be kept safe. That is the beautiful imagery that the pastor of Hebrews chooses to encourage your faith today. This picture of an anchor for your soul. Verse 19 tells us that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So that no matter how much the storm rages about us, as long as this anchor holds, as long as we have refuge in our God and what He has done for us in Christ, we know that we will be kept safe until day truly comes. And so the message to you today is a fairly simple message. Uh, it's an encouragement to you to hold fast to that hope, to hold on to that anchor, and to wait out the storm with faith and patience as you entrust yourself to the very faithfulness of God Himself. Uh, and so today, as we think about this passage before us, I want to do so under three uh, main headings. First, we want to think about God's promise to us. Secondly, God's purpose. And then finally, God's priest. God's promise, God's purpose, and God's priest. And before we jump right in to verses 13 and following, we need to pause for just a moment to see how this passage is connected to what comes before it. 
the word that connects us is that little word for. It's the clue that we need to read verses 13 and following in light of what he has just said. And so what has he just said in verses 11 and 12? The pastor tells us about his prayer and his desire and his hope for his flock. He says, And we desire each one of you to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He desires that you should have full assurance of hope and that you would not be sluggish, but with faith and patience that you would imitate those who are the inheritors of the promise. Uh, and he, he says that, um, that they should do this, and then he tells us uh, how we might do it. He does this in two ways. He says, he says, so first, by appealing to God's own promise, and then by setting before us an example of someone who had faith and patience, namely Abraham. So look at verses 13 and 14, and I want you to begin to see the connection between 11 and 12 and 13 through 14. He says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You see the connection there? He says, I want you to imitate those who have faith and patience and inherit the promises. And look, here's Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, he swore by himself, and Abraham, when he had patiently waited, obtained the promise. But it is God's promise that is the main thing here. He says that when God made this promise, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Because people swear by something greater than themselves, don't they? Verse 16. We know that to be true. When we promise something, when we swear that we are telling the truth, we swear on something greater than ourselves. In our own justice system, for many years, uh, people were called to put their right hand on the Bible and to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. God was being called as a witness against the person testifying, so that if their testimony was false, they were calling on God the judge of all the earth, to set it right. And we do this in our experience all the time. But what about God? By whom can God swear? Who does God call as a witness to the truthfulness of what He says? Is there anyone or anything greater than God? Of course not. Everything that exists exists because God spoke it into existence. He was before all things, and in Him all things live and move and have their being. So who does God call as a witness when He swears an oath? Well, since there's no one greater, the pastor says, He swears by Himself. And that's not simply an abstract sort of philosophical question for the author of Hebrews. He's actually exegeting Scripture here. He's doing what faithful pastors do, and he's explaining what the Scripture says. 
And here he happens to be quoting from Genesis chapter 22. If we went back to Genesis 22, we would find that God says to Abraham, By myself I have sworn, because you have done this, I will surely bless you and multiply you, and your offspring will be like the stars of the heaven and the sand of the seashore. Because you've done this, I swear by myself that I am going to prosper you. But in this context, what is the reason for God swearing his oath? When God says, because you have done this, what is the this that Abraham had done? Of course, Genesis 22 is a very familiar passage. It is that passage where Abraham takes his only begotten son, Isaac, and ascends Mount Moriah to offer him in sacrifice before the Lord. The story didn't begin in Genesis 22. It began in Genesis 12 and 15, where God promised to give Isaac to Abraham. Of course, you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah and how they were beyond the years of childbearing. And yet God miraculously gave them this child of promise, the one through whom all of the promises would come to pass. And it's that promised child who is climbing up the mountain with Abraham to be sacrificed. It is that only child who said, Father, here's the knife and here's the wood for the offering, but what about the sacrifice? What about the burnt offering? What about the lamb? To which Abraham replied, my son God will supply the sacrifice for the offering. You see, because it was the child of promise, it was God's very word that was at stake. God said, I am going to fulfill these promises through this child through this son. And so it was God's word that was on the line that day. And because of that, Abraham's faith did not waver. He was ready, he was willing to offer up Isaac because he was so fully persuaded that God would be true to his word. He was not sluggish, he was not wavering in faith, but by faith and patience, like the author of Hebrews says, he was to inherit the promises. He was so convinced that God would be true to his word that he believed that God would even raise his son from the dead. He was willing to put him to death believing that God would raise him from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 says. And you remember the story as he's about to drive the knife into his only son. The angel of the Lord stayed his hand and provided a ram caught in the thicket. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham received Isaac as back from the dead. This is the context in which God says, by myself I have sworn, because you've done this, because you've not withheld your son, your only begotten son, I will surely bless you and multiply you. You see, God's promise is joined to the picture of the death and resurrection of the promised seed. Isaac's deliverance is the oath that God swears. 
as God stays Abraham's hand and as he provides that ram for the sacrifice, do you know what God is doing? He is committing himself in that moment to do all that is necessary for Isaac's salvation. He is committing himself to see that Isaac can come off of that altar. And of course, what God will do is all pictured right there for us in the death and resurrection of Isaac. It is God who will give His only begotten Son in the fullness of time, who will give Jesus in the place of Isaac, and who will give Jesus in the place of all of the children of promise. The God who had given Abraham this promise confirmed that promise to him by giving him back his son from the dead. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He not only had God's word, but he had his son back from the dead, as it were, raised off the altar of sacrifice as a confirmation that God would be true to his word and that the promise would be fulfilled through Isaac. Abraham received Isaac back into his arms, but his faith received Christ. as we think about this promise and as we just try to take in that big picture, we need to ask ourselves also, what is God's purpose in this? Uh, And I think as we begin to talk about God's purpose and we think about what the author of Hebrews, how he is reflecting and meditating on this, uh, there's this underlying assumption that we need to get. There's this underlying assumption about swearing oaths in the first place. Think for a moment why it is that people swear an oath. Why is it that such a thing as an oath even exists? Why do people feel the need to swear by something greater than themselves? Of course, the reason is because people lie. It's because people do not tell the truth. Because there needs to be something to confirm the truthfulness of what they're saying. Right? Some way to convince others that in this moment, their word corresponds to reality. That's why in all of their disputes, an oath is final for what? For confirmation. An oath is meant to confirm the truth on the one hand, but to convince those before whom it's sworn. But what is true of man is not always true of God. In fact, in one of the prophets, uh, it is said that God is not a man that he should buy. Neither is he the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken and will he not make good on it? God tells us that he's not like sinful men at all in this regard. His word is always reliable. His word always corresponds to reality. The Bible says that God not only does not lie, but that he cannot lie. It's completely contrary to his nature. Okay. So then why an oath? (laughs) If oaths are because people generally lie, and God cannot lie, why is God putting himself under an oath. Isn't it just enough that God would say, I will do it? 
The author of Hebrews tells us why. Look at verses 17 through 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Why did God do it? He did it for your sake. Not because he needed to. He cannot lie. But he did it so that he might show you even more convincingly how unchangeable his purpose is to fulfill his promises to his people. To show this more convincingly to the heirs of the promise. That's you. It's not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's those who share the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the heirs of the promise. God swears this oath not because he needs to prove himself, but to convince you, to persuade you, to convince you that the character of his promise is absolutely unchangeable. That his promise to save you and deliver you from your sins, to bless you and to multiply you, to raise you from the dead. That is a promise that will not fail. It cannot fail. Because God cannot fail to keep it. He will bring it about. And He's done this, and He's done it in this way, so that by these two unchangeable things, the fact that God cannot lie, and the fact that He has sworn by himself to fulfill it, you might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before you. That's his purpose. So that you might hold on to the promise. So that you might cling to it with everything that is in you. That you who have fled for Jesus, to, to Jesus for refuge might have this strong encouragement to hold on tight, to not let go of the anchor. These things are meant to encourage your faith so that you hold fast to Christ, so that when the storm does blow and all you have is God's promise, when the breakers of temptation are over your head and so many waves of trial and tribulation, of sickness and sorrow, of doubt and depression, and disillusionment and all of the things that would crowd out your faith when your soul is so tossed about that you don't think you can make it through the night God wants to tell you that he who cannot lie has not only sworn but he has given you this oath and it is Christ that we have it's not simply Isaac, the son of Abraham, but we have Jesus. We have Jesus' death as our substitute. Like that ram offered in exchange for Isaac, so Jesus was offered up in our place. He was offered up for our transgressions to pay the penalty for our sins. We have his death. But more than that, yes, more than that, Paul says, we have his resurrection. 
He was delivered up for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. He died. More than that, is raised, and indeed is at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. This is the anchor to which your faith can hold. You have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on your behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All of that last verses there in verses 19 and 20 is priestly language. Jesus is God's priest. And I, I don't have time to even begin to get into the marvelous figure of Melchizedek here. Uh, but just to note that this is all priestly language. Uh, the, the reference to the veil, of course, is the reference to the veil of the temple. And his image here is an image of the anchor that now goes through that veil and joins itself within the veil. Typically, an anchor, of course, joins itself to the firm ground of the ocean floor. It steadies the ship. Your anchor is Christ. He is the one who has passed through that veil and now enables you to ride out the storm and patiently endure and hold fast. Your hope, your confidence are in His person and in His work. He is your anchor. Christ Himself. Your anchor is not simply a feeling in your heart or an experience you've had. It is not your wealth. It is not your degrees. It is not your pedigree. Your anchor is not your family. It is not your spouse, your children, your parents. All of these things will fail you. Jesus is your anchor. Or is he? Maybe it's a good opportunity to ask yourself the question, just what is my anchor? What am I holding on to? Where am I placing my confidence and my hope? What is it that can deliver me from my sins and from the storms of life? If Jesus is your anchor, then you are assured that you are safe, that you have a refuge, and you have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope because your anchor is anchored in heaven. Look again at verse 19. And now I just want you to form a mental picture, if you can, while I read this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on your behalf. This anchor has done something. It has passed through the veil and it has anchored itself in the heavenly most holy place. That veil, that veil of the temple is that veil which separated God from His people. And as long as that veil was intact, 
it said in numerous ways, you may not draw near. You shall not enter my rest is a favorite way of saying it in Hebrews. But when Christ dies, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And when Christ was raised from the dead, he himself enters into heaven and was taken behind that curtain. And he has made you capable of drawing near to God. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But here's the difference. Unlike all of the old priests of the Old Testament, who when they went into that most holy place, the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement and not without blood, when they went in, they made atonement and they scurried back out. But not Jesus. When Jesus goes in and he makes atonement, he sits down. The high priest went in and made atonement on the throne of God, that which visibly represented the throne of God, the, the Ark of the Covenant. When Jesus goes in, he sits down at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, having made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now just think about what that is saying. Where is your anchor? It's anchored to the very throne of God himself. Your anchor, the thing that keeps you sure and steadfast, is anchored to God's own throne. It is as if, it's as if the whole image of an anchor is turned upside down. Now the rope doesn't go down to an anchor at the bottom of the seafloor. The rope extends up into heaven, as it were. And there it's anchored to God's own throne because Christ is seated there. He's gone there as a forerunner on your behalf. And this is one of the many mixed metaphors that the author of Hebrews uses. Now he's not just the anchor, but he's the forerunner. The forerunner is one who goes before. It, it, it necessarily presumes that those are coming after him. This anchor not only keeps you sure and steadfast, but this is an anchor that pulls you up. It brings you up into the very presence of God himself. And all of this, all of this beautiful picture that is painted for you by the pastor of Hebrews is meant to encourage your faith so that you by faith and patience might inherit the promises. Now just in conclusion, think about Abraham again. Think about how storm-tossed Abraham's soul must have been that day as he was climbing the mountain. If anyone ever needed an anchor, if anyone ever needed strong encouragement to hold fast to God's promise, it was Abraham. About to give up his only son. I've thought often uh, of Pastor Jeff right now. 
and of his son Ezra and what they must be going through and how desperately they need to hold fast to their anchor. I've spent four days of this vacation in the hospital with my cousin who had a kidney transplant a month ago and then lost the kidney two weeks ago. And I have been every night telling him, I read this scripture to him, I basically preached this sermon to him in the hospital. And I've been telling him every day to hold fast to his anchor. It doesn't mean that the storms of life aren't going to blow. It doesn't mean that your life isn't going to be turned completely upside down. But what it means is at the end of the day, you have God's promise of resurrection life in His presence so that nothing can separate you from Him. And God has given you two things to convince you of this. Not only His Word, but that oath. He gives them to you to convince you so that you might have strong encouragement to hold fast. Beloved, I pray that when the storms blow, you might remember this passage. That the Holy Spirit might bring it back to your mind time and time again. That you might reflect upon what your Savior has done and how you are able to endure because of the promise of God himself and what he has done in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, how thankful we are that you yourself give us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this encouragement of your unchangeable character, of your purpose. We have this encouragement to hold fast to the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, that hope that enters even into the inner place, behind the curtain where you've gone as a forerunner on our behalf, where our Savior now sits until he set all of his enemies under his feet. And so, Lord, in the midst of this life, we pray that you would be pleased to cause this word to be uh, engraved, as it were, upon our hearts and minds that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast this hope, that we might cling to it with all that is in us, that when the night is dark and we are letting out anchors and praying for day to come, that we might see that glorious day, that we would set all of our hope upon the revelation of Jesus Christ and His coming. And so help us to endure. Help us with faith and patience to press on, to imitate the faith and patience of those who inherit the promises. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.